Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of domestic abuse, murder, suicide, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Eva Stein and Pablo Fenbess were neighbors on the same block in Ritzy, Brentwood, California. They were both trying to sleep at 10.15 p.m. on June 12, 1994. But the persistent sounds of barking interrupted the stillness of the night. The dog was loud enough to wake the whole neighborhood. Mark Storfer complained of the continued yapping at 10.28 p.m., Elsie Tistier didn't look at the clock, but she was disturbed by the sound for roughly half an hour. It was after 10.45 when another resident, Louis Carpa, stepped outside to grab his mail and spotted the source of all the commotion, an anxious Akita. Not only was the dog noticeably upset, but its paws were coated in fresh, wet blood. By this point, a small crowd of neighbors had gathered outside to see what was going on. Shukru Balztepa and his wife, Bettina Rasmussen, agreed to walk the pet. They hoped the exercise would calm it, and maybe it would find its way home. The couple leashed the Akita and started to walk, but it broke into a run and sprinted all the way down Bundy Avenue to the house that belonged to Nicole Brown Simpson. What they found there was a nightmare. As Boztepa later described to the police, the dog looked at the right side of the street. I saw a lady laying down in a pool of blood. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we'll look at the 1994 murder of Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson, ex-wife of NFL superstar O.J. Simpson. Once detectives uncover Nicole's history of domestic abuse, they'll follow a trail of bloody clues right to their top suspect's door. Next week, we'll recount one of history's most famous murder trials and explore how race relations, media sensationalism, and accusations of police misconduct all led to O.J. Simpson's highly controversial not guilty ruling. The Los Angeles Police Department, including lead investigators Philip Van Adder and Thomas Lang, 
first arrived on the scene shortly after midnight on June 13, 1994. What they found testified to a brutal, violent homicide. A 35-year-old blonde woman lay dead on the steps outside her condominium in a pool of her own blood. The corpse of a 25-year-old man was sprawled in the nearby bushes. There were clear signs of a struggle, and both victims had numerous stab wounds. In the woman's case, her neck had almost been completely severed. A left-handed glove, presumably worn by the attacker, was discarded on the ground. A trail of bloody footsteps suggested the killer had been injured in the scuffle. Nothing had been taken from the house, ruling out robbery as a motive. Upstairs, two children were still in their beds. Apparently, they'd slept through the entire violent attack. The police easily identified the woman as Nicole Brown Simpson, the mother of the children upstairs. She was presumably the primary target of the killer, who'd stabbed her to death outside her home. The man, Ronald Lyle Goldman, was a friend of Nicole's. He was presumably at her house for a visit when the killer struck and likely intervened to defend her. But his heroism was in vain. Not only did he fail to save Nicole, it led to his own death as well. But now that police knew the identities of the victims, the next question was, who'd killed them and why? Nicole was something of a minor celebrity in the ritzy Los Angeles neighborhood. Originally from Germany, Nicole and her family had moved to Southern California in the 1960s when she was a young girl. By 1977, 18-year-old Nicole was working as a waitress at a Beverly Hills club called The Daisy. There, she met many celebrities, including 30-year-old pro footballer Orenthal James Simpson, better known as O.J. or Juice. From the beginning, O.J. found Nicole irresistible, and she was just as taken with him. He was handsome, rich, and a celebrity. Even though he was still married to his first wife, Marguerite, he doted on Nicole as the affair began. He even bought her a Porsche and paid rent on her new apartment. Nicole was beautiful, but also young and inexperienced. She was swept up in the romanticism of dating a celebrity. He was an NFL star who'd cemented his place in sports history by rushing 2,000 yards in a single season, and two years later, scoring a then-record-breaking 23 touchdowns in one year. But his stardom extended beyond the football field. Two years after he and Nicole began dating, he retired from the NFL to embark on a sportscaster career, then later to become a movie star. That same year, 1979, he divorced his first wife. He and Nicole dated for six more years before marrying in 1985. Their first daughter was born that year, and a son followed three years later. But life with O.J. proved to be anything but a happily ever after for Nicole. Reportedly, he was violently abusive. On New Year's Eve, 
29-year-old Nicole and 41-year-old OJ hosted a party at his house. Four hours after the ball dropped, a call went through to 911. The dispatcher didn't hear a caller on the line, only the sounds of a violent fight and a woman screaming in the background. At 4.15 in the morning on January 1st, 1989, LAPD officers pulled up to the Simpsons' house. They called in on an intercom, but the maid who answered assured them that there was no emergency. While the police argued, Nicole ran up from where she'd been hiding in nearby bushes. She wore a bra and sweatpants and was visibly bruised with a cut lip. As she approached, she shouted, He's going to kill me! He's going to kill me! The officers prodded her for further information. Who was going to kill her? Nicole answered that it was her husband, O.J. Simpson, the football player. Patrolman John Edwards gave Nicole a jacket to cover herself, seated her in the back seat of his car, and asked if she wanted to give a formal statement. She was cooperative but pessimistic. She said, You guys never do anything. You've been out here eight times. You never do anything about him. I want him arrested. Edwards was all too willing to oblige Nicole's request, but arresting O.J. Simpson didn't prove so easy. The football player fled in his Bentley before Edwards was done talking to Nicole. Without a perpetrator on sight, Edwards instead brought Nicole to the police station, where her injuries were photographed, and she signed a formal statement. Two days later, on January 3rd, the city of Los Angeles charged O.J. Simpson with spousal battery. He pleaded no contest, and on May 24, 1989, he was sentenced to a two-year probation and was required to attend counseling sessions and donate $470, about $1,000 today, to an organization for battered women. Hardly the outcome Nicole must have hoped for when she gave her statement to police. But that was one of the perks of O.J.'s celebrity. He wasn't just famous, he was also charming and rich. He had the means to hire expert lawyers and wiggle his way out of any charges. After all, no judge or jury wanted to convict the juice. Throughout her seven-year marriage, Nicole called 911 to report domestic violence or to beg for police intervention at least 30 times. And then there were the instances where she didn't bother to call anyone. On one occasion, Nicole vented to her best friend, Faye Resnick, about the ongoing abuse. When Faye asked how frequently O.J. beat her, Nicole responded, It was a lot, Faye. It was too many times to count. After years of cheating, violence, and endless emergency calls that never went anywhere, 32-year-old Nicole Brown Simpson finally filed for divorce in 1992. But even the dissolution of her marriage didn't get O.J. out of her life. The average victim of domestic violence attempts to leave their partner seven times before they're able to end the relationship for good. 
Abusers have many tools to keep their significant others under their thumbs. They might control the family's finances, so their exes have to choose between homelessness or reconciliation. If children are involved, abusers can drag their partner to court in custody disputes. And they might use violence or threats of violence to punish their partner for leaving. More than half of female domestic abuse survivors are stalked after they leave their ex. And roughly 75% of intimate partner murders occur after the relationship ends. It's hard to say how all these factors impacted Nicole's decision to leave, but we know that after the divorce, O.J. continued to threaten and stalk his ex-wife. She called 911 on October 25, 1993, a year after her divorce and eight months before she died. Nicole opened the call by saying, Can you send someone to my house? My ex-husband has just broken into my house and he's ranting and raving outside the front yard. Later that same day, she placed another emergency call. This time she said, could you get somebody over here now? He's back, please. He's O.J. Simpson. I think you know his record. Could you just send somebody over here? While the dispatcher tried to get more information, Nicole grew more noticeably upset by the second. She began crying. When the operator asked if Nicole was being threatened, she answered, you're going to hear him in a minute. He's about to come in again. I don't want to stay on the line. Later on in the call, the operator was able to hear O.J.'s shouted threats and Nicole's screams. In spite of all of the evidence of ongoing violence, he was not charged for these instances. As is often the case in abusive relationships, Nicole couldn't quite let go of her ex-husband either. They repeatedly tried to reconcile. Several times her neighbors spotted O.J. playing with the children at her place. And they could tell when Nicole and O.J. were on the outs because of the ever-rotating line of boyfriends she went out with. She only had one serious relationship post-divorce with Kansas City Chiefs running back Marcus Allen. Marcus and O.J. were similar in a lot of ways. They'd both leveraged astonishing college football outings into NFL careers. They were best friends and they were both married when they began seeing Nicole. O.J. had always been jealous and possessive of Nicole, but her serious relationship with another football star was a bridge too far. In the summer of 1994, she wrote in her diary that O.J. had told her, You ever see Marcus again, and I will kill you. But Nicole didn't bow down to the threats. She kept dating Marcus. A month later, she and Ron Goldman were found dead. Up next, police track down O.J. Simpson and hear his testimony about where he was at the time of Nicole's death. Now back to the story. On June 13, 1994, Divorcee Nicole Brown Simpson was found dead in her home on Bundy Drive, along with her friend, Ron Goldman. A preliminary investigation implicated her ex-husband, 47-year-old O.J. Simpson, due to his long history of domestic abuse. 
As police gathered what evidence they could, they had to work around the growing media presence outside Nicole's condo. Word had gotten out that the ex-wife of a famous football player had been brutally murdered. It was exactly the sort of story that grabbed headlines. The police hurried to notify the families of the deceased before they read about the murders in the morning papers. Even though O.J. and Nicole had been divorced for two years, he still counted as next of kin. Around 4.30 a.m. on June 13th, four uniformed officers, including detectives Philip Van Adder, Thomas Lang, and Officer Mark Furman, pulled up to his house on Rockingham Avenue. Before they even went inside, the officers noted a white Ford Bronco parked on the street. They stopped a little up the road from it, then buzzed at O.J.'s gate. But nobody answered. Nobody was home. While the other officers debated what to do next, Furman walked around to the back entrance. He was already somewhat familiar with O.J.'s property. Nine years prior, he'd responded to one of Nicole's 911 calls. Along the way to the back of the property, he got a better look at the Bronco and the visible red smears on the door. Bloody handprints. According to Furman, he didn't immediately assume that O.J. was a suspect, even then. Instead, he thought that the juice might have also been a victim of violent crime that night. Perhaps he hadn't answered the door because he was injured or dying just inside the house. Thanks to the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, police must obtain consent or a warrant to enter or search private property. But they can make an exception if there are exigent circumstances, like if the police have good reason to believe someone is in need of immediate rescue. Based on the bloody smears, the officers forced their way through the gate and onto the grounds outside the Rockingham mansion. There, Furman found the one piece of evidence that set the whole investigation on its head. Lying on the ground was a blood-soaked glove, the right-handed mate to the one that had been found at Nicole's murder scene. Suddenly, Furman considered that O.J. might not be a victim at all. He could be the perpetrator. Police were even more suspicious when they first got hold of O.J. a little after 4 a.m. to notify him of his ex-wife's death. He'd just checked into O'Hare Plaza Hotel in Chicago after taking a red-eye flight from Los Angeles the night before. He was supposed to participate in a golf tournament that day. When officers informed O.J. that his wife had been found murdered, he seemed unsurprised. He didn't ask any follow-up questions, not even how she died or whether the cops had any suspects. He seemed strangely calm, like he'd known this call was coming. Soon after they hung up, O.J. booked a return flight to L.A. But while he was boarding his plane, a team of police officers, including Mark Furman, were searching the grounds outside his home. What they'd already found was compelling. Blood smeared on the door of his Bronco, droplets scattered across the grounds that appeared to be human blood, a right leather glove that seemed to match one found at the murder scene, 
OJ's rushed flight to Chicago the night before seemed telling as well. All these findings spurred the investigators to request a warrant to search inside the house. By 10.45 that morning, police had the appropriate paperwork in hand. They entered OJ's mansion and searched his Bronco. Inside the car, investigators found even more blood droplets. They also discovered dabs of blood on a pair of socks in OJ's bedroom. They sent most of the samples for DNA testing. But at this point, Furman considered the lab results just a formality. He already knew in his gut that OJ had murdered his ex-wife, Nicole. As soon as the juice touched down at LAX, police requested that he come to the station for questioning. He cooperated, arriving at noon on June 13th. The interview was brief. Chief investigators Philip Van Adder and Thomas Lang knew that they had a wealth of physical evidence. Perhaps they were so confident of the strength of their case, they didn't focus on the merits of a proper questioning at all. For example, they asked O.J. about past documented incidents of domestic violence. He answered, We had a big fight about six years ago on New Year's. You know, she made a report. And then we had an altercation about a year ago, maybe. It wasn't a physical argument. I kicked her door or something. Rather than press for more information about either fight, Van Adder and Lang asked a few follow-up questions about O.J.'s arrest record, then changed topics entirely. Likewise, O.J. couldn't account for his whereabouts between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. the night Nicole died, but neither officer pressed him for an alibi. Instead, Van Adder focused on one new piece of evidence, the visible cut on O.J.'s left hand. To Van Adder, it looked like exactly the sort of injury someone might sustain in a violent confrontation. But when pressed, O.J. explained it away. He was so grief-stricken over the news of Nicole's death, he'd shattered a glass with his bare hands, slicing his hand open. Van Adder and Lang didn't buy the explanation, but they apparently didn't see much point in asking more questions. Instead, they focused on making their physical case as strong as possible. They convinced O.J. to agree to a blood test so they could compare his DNA against the samples they'd found at the crime scene. After he left a vial of blood, he was free to go that afternoon. DNA technology in the mid-1990s wasn't as advanced as it is today, but the labs were still able to determine that only one in 170 million people's blood matched that found at the crime scene. O.J. Simpson was one such person. Police also tested the sample found on O.J.'s socks. Only one in 6.8 billion people could match with this blood, and Nicole perfectly fit the profile. In other words, police could almost conclusively place O.J. at Nicole's house around the time of the murder, and they were almost certain he'd returned home with her blood on his clothes. Then there was the history of abuse. 
When a woman is murdered, she's statistically most likely to be killed by a partner or former partner. In the United States, an average of three women are killed by their significant other every day. Police already knew about O.J.'s history of violence against Nicole. It seemed all too likely that, finally, the abuse had crossed a line into murder. Confident that they'd identified a motive and had ample physical evidence, the police started working on a timeline for the murder. They were sure that O.J. did it. Now they had to figure out when he did it. On the last night of her life, Nicole had dinner with her mother and a few friends at the Mezzaluna, a restaurant near her Brentwood condo. They left around 8.30 p.m., grabbed ice cream at Ben and & Jerry's, and Nicole and her children were home by 9. But about a half hour after that, Nicole got a call from her mother. She'd left her glasses at the restaurant. A few more phone calls ensued until Nicole reached a friend of hers who worked as a waiter at the restaurant. Ron Goldman. He located the glasses and offered to drive to Nicole's house to drop them off that night. That was the last time anyone ever heard from Ron or Nicole. While Nicole and Ron were chatting on the phone about the glasses, OJ went out to McDonald's with his friend and housemate, Cato Kalin. The two returned home together at about 9.35 p.m. and retired to their separate rooms. Neither O.J., Nicole, or Ron were heard from for over an hour afterward. Presumably, this was when the murder took place. Neighbors first reported hearing Nicole's Akita barking around 10.15 p.m. But could O.J. have been at the scene of the crime at that time? To determine his chronology, detectives Lang and Van Adder turned to limo driver Alan Park. Park was supposed to give O.J. a ride to the airport the night of the murder. He arrived at O.J.'s estate around 10.20, but couldn't get through the gate. He drove around the block a few times, then rang the bell at 10.40, but still nobody answered. O.J. didn't seem to be at home. Park repeatedly rang the bell until 11 p.m. Around that time, he reported spotting a shadowy figure walking up O.J.'s driveway, but couldn't make out any distinct features because no lights were on. About 15 minutes later, O.J. emerged from his house, loaded his luggage into Park's limo, and headed to the airport for his flight to Chicago. He took off roughly 15 minutes before Nicole and Ron's bodies were found. The juice had no good explanation for where he'd been that night between 9.35 and 11.15 p.m. He couldn't seem to account for why he was nearly an hour late for his limo pickup. But Van Adder and Lang thought they knew exactly where he'd been. All the evidence added up to tell an irrefutable story. O.J. Simpson was a murderer. Up next, investigators attempt to arrest O.J. and a highly publicized car chase ensues. Now back to the story. 
On June 13, 1994, 26-year-old Ron Goldman and 35-year-old Nicole Brown Simpson were found murdered at her Brentwood home. Thanks to a wealth of bloody evidence, detectives Philip Van Adder and Thomas Lang immediately identified Nicole's 47-year-old ex-husband, O.J. Simpson, as their top suspect. But Simpson didn't let his alleged guilt stop him from attending Nicole's funeral. Press packed the streets and parking lot outside the church, snapping photos of mourners on their way in and out. Even during the comparative peace and quiet of the ceremony, Nicole's grieving friends couldn't escape the spectacle of her murder. Her body had been so badly mutilated, the funeral home was unable to disguise her wounds with clothing or makeup. Instead, Nicole's remains were partially covered with countless white roses to hide her injuries. When Nicole's good friend Faye Resnick reached the graveyard for the burial, she was nearly overwhelmed by the press of reporters and photographers outside the cemetery gates. Helicopters whirled overhead. Even worse, though, was the sight of O.J. standing over Nicole's grave. Faye wondered, what are you feeling, O.J.? Is it grief, terror, or are you thinking of yourself? Faye wasn't the only one nursing suspicions about O.J.'s guilt. The police were still building their case. Perhaps sensing that arrest was imminent, O.J. hired attorney Robert Shapiro on June 15, 1994. It was Shapiro then who took the call from the LAPD shortly thereafter. The city planned to charge his client with first-degree murder. Shapiro was unsurprised cooperative even. He assured detectives Van Adder and Lang that O.J. would surrender himself at 11 a.m. on June 17th. It seemed like a fair arrangement. Ever since news of Nicole's death had broken, a media storm had followed O.J. everywhere he went. If he self-surrendered, it could be private. No pictures of the juice in handcuffs to be splashed across every front page in the country. He'd even have a few hours to get his affairs in order before he went to prison. As Van Adder and Lang got their man, they didn't mind cooperating to spare O.J. embarrassment in the tabloids. So they agreed to the terms. But they started to have second thoughts around 11.05 on June 17th. The appointed time for his surrender had come and gone and O.J. was nowhere to be seen. Maybe he'd gotten held up in L.A.'s notorious gridlock, but he still wasn't there at 11.15 or at 11.30. By the time 11.45 rolled around, Lang and Van Adder couldn't excuse his tardiness anymore. He simply wasn't coming. A phone call with Shapiro didn't provide any reassurance. So with the police chief's approval, they dispatched a team to arrest O.J. at his Rockingham home. At 1 p.m., three hours after O.J.'s deadline, four officials buzzed for entry at his front door. No answer. They stormed through the house, finding an empty kitchen, empty living room, empty bedrooms, 
empty home altogether. O.J. Simpson had fled. The investigators choked back the bitter taste of failure as they reported that the suspect was gone. Meanwhile, they searched O.J.'s home for any clue about where he'd fled to. Hopefully, he hadn't already gotten out of the country. Soon, they found a letter that suggested an even grimmer conclusion. It read, I can't believe what is being said. Most of it is totally made up. I know you have a job to do, but as a last wish, please, please, please leave my children in peace. Their lives will be tough enough. I want to send my love and thanks to all my friends. I wish we had spent more time together. As I leave, you'll be in my thoughts. Based on this text, the police could only conclude that O.J. Simpson, rather than face murder charges, planned to kill himself. The team's disappointment was palpable as they left the Simpson house that afternoon. Van Adder and Lang could feel success slipping through their fingers. The entire case had come together so easily. They had a wealth of evidence, a motive, and a cooperative suspect. Now it seemed that Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman might never get justice. The thought was devastating. But they weren't going to give up yet. If there was one benefit to having a celebrity as a person of interest, it was that he was recognizable. Around 2 p.m., LAPD Commander David Gascone hosted a press conference. He labeled O.J. Simpson a wanted murder suspect. An hour later, District Attorney Gil Garcetti elaborated further. O.J. was missing and, as he put it, nobody knows where he is. Both speakers warned that if anyone was found cooperating with the alleged killer, there would be dire consequences. In addition, they each called for the public to contact the police with any information regarding O.J.'s whereabouts. The first tip came from O.J. himself. At 5.51 p.m., he called 911, announcing his intentions to shoot himself in the head. He said, I want to go with Nicole. That's all I want to do. That's all I've been trying to do. While dispatchers tried to trace a location for the call, other reports started pouring in. Witnesses had seen O.J. in the back seat of a white Ford Bronco. His friend and former teammate, linebacker Al Cowlings, was driving down the 5 freeway in Santa Ana. O.J. had a gun to his own head. Within minutes, several police cruisers were dispatched, and the chase was on. But the Juice had built a career on amazing runs. He had years of experience sprinting down the field, dodging defensive football players. Now he applied that same kind of focus to his escape. It wasn't just the police who were closing in on O.J., as news got out that the celebrity was driving down the highway trying to escape the cops, reporters converged on the scene. Choppers crisscrossed southwestern Los Angeles, airing live broadcasts about the pursuit. It was a Friday night, but people around America sat at home, glued to their TV sets. 
95 million viewers watched as the white Bronco merged from the 5 to the 91 West, leading the squad cars back toward Brentwood. Two out of every three television sets on at the time were tuned to the Juice's attempted escape. Los Angeles is infamous for its high-speed police chases, but O.J.'s drive played out in slow motion. The Bronco crawled along, rarely exceeding 30 miles per hour, and the pursuing squad cars didn't want to pull too close or try to run him off the road. O.J. still had the gun's barrel pressed against his face, and the risk that he might attempt suicide was too high. Instead, they deflected traffic away from the road and followed him at a careful speed and cautious distance. In an effort to bring things to a peaceful conclusion, Detective Lang connected to O.J. Simpson's cell phone at 5.56 p.m. He talked to the suspect throughout the chase, urging O.J. to pull over and surrender his gun. The Juice, meanwhile, vacillated between threatening to harm himself and begging to be allowed to return home. Eager to keep the suspect on the line and to deter him from firing, Lang relented. The cars would follow O.J. to Rockingham Avenue and apprehend him in his own driveway. Finally, after an hour and a half, the Bronco merged onto the 405. From there, it exited into a familiar neighborhood, Brentwood. While the police scrambled to chase O.J. safely, fans recklessly hit the streets to cheer on their favorite football star. People poured out of their apartment complexes and houses, crowding the residential blocks. Spectators waved handmade paper signs with hastily scrawled marker messages like, We love the juice and save the juice. Just before 8 p.m., the Bronco pulled into O.J.'s driveway. Thanks to Los Angeles's long summer days, it was still bright outside, and dozens of people flocked to watch the arrest. While some officers strung up police tape and focused on crowd control, others turned their attention to O.J. himself, who still sat in the car, gun in hand, refusing to step out. For a tense hour, police negotiated with their suspect. He still had the gun pressed to his chin. He still insisted that he intended to kill himself. And Detective Van Adder wasn't willing to let his suspect escape a trial, even in death. The sun set, and finally, under the relatively private cover of night, O.J. climbed out of the Bronco. Perhaps that was what he'd been waiting for all along, a way to surrender without the crowd seeing. He was immediately disarmed and handcuffed. When the police searched the Bronco, they found a passport, nearly $9,000 in cash, and a fake beard, clear evidence that O.J. had planned to flee the country. Van Adder and Lang once more breathed a sigh of relief that they'd managed to nab O.J. before his escape. But they'd have no opportunity to celebrate the arrest. The highly publicized O.J. Simpson murder trial would prove to be lengthy, stressful, and grueling. 
the proceedings would completely alter public perception of the LAPD and Van Adder's and Lang's credibility as investigators forever. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with the trial of the century, O.J. Simpson's 10-month-long murder hearing. Not only did O.J.'s case become a media sensation, it shaped the course of Los Angeles criminal proceedings for over two decades afterward. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself. Was O.J. Simpson guilty of murdering his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson? Or did the bloody glove fit another unknown assailant? And... Will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.